Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman. Welcome back to another episode of The Oregon Bridge. Now that the legislative session is over, it's time for Oregon's activists, candidates, and political committees to turn their attention to the 2024 elections. With government regulation of political activities becoming more complicated nearly every year, and with political actors increasingly initiating complaints and litigation to achieve political goals, having experienced legal counsel has become critical to success in the political arena. Harang Long PC has represented clients involved in candidate and ballot measure elections for decades. To learn more about Harang Long's political law practice, check out our website at harang.com. That's www.harrang.com. All right, folks. Today we have an interview that I've been looking forward to for a very long time. I got to speak with Mark Johnson. Mark is the author of the new book, brand new book, Mansfield and Dirksen, Bipartisan Giants of the Senate. Mark is an awesome guy. He lives on the Oregon coast now, so he is an Oregonian. And he's had a very storied career in politics and journalism. So his writing on politics and history has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and many other entities. He chaired both the Idaho Humanities Council and the Federation of State Humanities Councils. He's taught courses on politics and history at both Boise State University and the University of Arizona. And in addition to working as a broadcast journalist, he worked at the highest levels of state government, including as press secretary and Chief of Staff to former Idaho Governor Cecil Andrus. Cecil Andrus, who we talk about a little bit in this podcast, a very famous politician from Idaho. He served as Interior Secretary in the Carter administration, and I think is the longest serving governor in Idaho history as a Democrat, uh, non-contiguous terms, super interesting guy, and Mark knows him really well. Mark's a talented writer. I really enjoyed reading the book. Um, it's readable. It's funny. It's intimate. It's really a, a portrait of two sort of odd leaders of American history who were really good at what they did and made the country a better place and had some incredible accomplishments in their time. So in this episode, we talk about Mansfield and Dirksen. We talk about the context of the 1960s that they were operating in, really challenging political context where they were doing some what could have been and was polarizing things with bipartisan broad support while also maintaining their leadership positions. I think Mansfield is the longest serving majority leader in, in Senate history. So we talk about that, but then we also talk about today and we talk about Oregon. So I think that part of the conversation I most enjoyed was hearing Mark talk about this question of, is this dynamic possible today? A lot has changed in America's political system since the 1960s when these two gentlemen were minority and majority leader. And then we also talk about lessons for Oregon leaders and what leadership lessons and strategic lessons could be learned from how these two navigated their jobs during a tough time. So there's a lot we cover in the episode. I really enjoyed talking to Mark. And if you have any interest in the history of the United States Senate or a case study on how bipartisan leadership actually works and the personality traits and approaches of two people who did it as well as anyone in American history, this is a book that you should read. I highly, highly recommend it. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode with Mark Johnson. All right, Mark Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Ben. What a pleasure to be with you. 
Yeah, well, I have been really looking forward to this conversation. The book we are here to talk about today is called Mansfield and Dirksen, Bipartisan Giants of the Senate. And it's a fascinating story with fascinating characters. But before we jump into talking about those two gentlemen who, while they are no longer with us, I'm sure you've gotten to know them pretty well over the course of writing this book. You also have an interesting background in political space. So can you start by just telling the listeners like how you have existed in the politics world and particularly your foray with uh, the former governor of Idaho, I think is interesting. Well, thank you. Yeah. I always say I've had a checkered career. I started out <laughs> as a reporter, went to college, studied journalism in my uh, Midwestern home, South Dakota, and uh, took a job pretty much right out of college in Boise, working for the CBS affiliate there, covering city government and eventually the legislature. Uh, moved over to public television in Idaho for about 10 years, hosted a daily public affairs program that was broadcast statewide, covered the state legislature on a daily basis. Um, really, it was the dream job in, uh, in, a, in a small state with a statewide reach of a, of a program with no real adult supervision uh, for us, so we could do whatever we darn well pleased five nights a week. It was, it was great. Uh, not the kind of job that you uh, put two kids through college uh, doing, but it was great fun. Uh, I left public television in Idaho in 19, at the very end of 1985 and went to work uh, for then former governor and former interior secretary Cecil Andrus, who was about to launch a political comeback and try to win the governorship again. Andrus had been elected governor in 1970, again in 1974, uh, went to, to Washington to be Jimmy Carter's interior secretary, then came back to Idaho, was out of public life for a while. I went to work on his campaign as his campaign press secretary. He won a very close election in 1986, and I became uh, the governor's press secretary for the next four years. He ran for the fourth time successfully in 1990, so just, I just have to pause, Ben, and say yeah. this guy was a remarkable political character. Elected governor uh, as a Democrat. In Idaho. <laughs> espoused conservation uh -huh. and education principles as the foremost things he believed in. Elected uh, four times in three different decades, longest serving governor in the state's history. And I had the pleasure of working for him for about nine years, eventually became his chief of staff. And then uh, after 1995, 1994, uh, I went to work running the Boise office of a firm called Gallatin. Uh -huh. We've, got a, we've got a branch in Oregon, or at yeah. least they work and in Oregon. I, yeah. I ran the Idaho office in those days and was uh, president of the company for a while. And then I retired uh, about 10 years ago and moved to the Oregon coast with my wife and uh, started writing history. Awesome. That is, I mean, you've got a, you've got a strong political pedigree uh, there. And I think, so, so was, so Cecil Andrus must have been governor during the Mansfield Dirksen era or was, no, I guess that would have been before his time a little bit. Well, no, actually he, at the very end of, uh, or the very beginning of his career, Mansfield was still a majority leader in the yeah. Senate. Um I don't think they ever really knew each other very well, uh, but, you know, Western politicians tend to flock together. Yes. Um, you know, and Andrus had great Oregon antecedents. He was born in Hood River, 
uh, grew up in the Springfield, Eugene area, went to Eugene High School, one year of college at Oregon State before he uh, uh, enlisted in the Navy during the Korean War. And uh, then after that uh, military service, uh, moved to Idaho and eventually got elected to the state legislature. And at 39, at the ripe old age of 39, was elected governor. Pretty remarkable. Pretty remarkable on a couple levels, not the least of which is being a, a Democrat elected in Idaho. Uh, well, he was a wonderful guy. He was the he was the best possible politician to be a press secretary for because he really didn't need a press secretary. He was so so good with uh, reporters and uh, meeting people. It was great fun to work for him. The the experience of my life, no question about it. That's awesome. Uh, so let's talk about. Mike Mansfield and Everett Dirksen. Uh, you know, we'll talk about the politics and some of their policy accomplishments and the context in which, which in within which they're operating. But these are two interesting people uh, who have very different personalities and bring very different skill sets to the table. But eventually become, I think, like at one point, one of them says, maybe they both say it. They love each other. Like these are more than just like coworkers who get along. Like they have a, a genuine affinity for one another. Can you tell us a little bit about these two characters and who they were and what they were like? Well, you, you're absolutely right, Ben. They were both fascinating personalities and about as different personalities as you can imagine in two human beings. You know, Mansfield um, was, his mother died when he was quite young. Mm -hmm. uh, he wound up getting shipped off to Montana from New York City at a very young age to live with relatives. He was kind of a wild kid, uh, kind of dropped out of school, uh, you know, got in a little bit of trouble, finally lied his way into uh, military service during the First World War, lied, lied about his age, uh, fabricated his uh, birth certificate so he could enlist in the Navy and served in World War One. ultimately wound up serving in all three branches of the military, in the Army and the Marine Corps. Um, came back to Montana after World War I and that military experience, you know, with no education to speak of, uh, worked in the copper mines in Butte, Montana, which is what young guys who didn't have many prospects often did, uh, met a young woman who was a, a, a teacher in the Butte school system, hmm. and they got married. She insisted that he go back to uh, school. He essentially completed his GED or what would what passed for a uh, general equivalency uh, diploma back in those days. At the same time, he graduated from college. Mm -hmm. So he had a history degree, went on to get a master's in history, taught at the University of Montana, ultimately got into politics, uh, but getting elected to the House of Representatives during World War II, the Senate in 1952 became Lyndon Johnson's understudy, and then became majority leader in 1961, and held that job for 16 consecutive years, still a record in the Senate. So the one interesting, um, one section of the book that I found super interesting was like how he became uh, majority leader, which I think starts when he becomes whip. So tell me, correct me if I'm wrong and fill in the gaps here. LBJ, who... Most of our listeners probably know this. If they don't, he is like the the majority le majority leader uh, by whom every subsequent majority leader is measured. He's like right. incredibly effective. He's domineering. He controls his caucus. He rams things through, but he's also got a soft touch. He's like the prototypical majority leader. And if my memory serves from, from the book, 
he's got someone else in mind who he wants to be his whip who's kind of like the right hand person the and i think it's the guy from florida who's like very politician-y but that guy like is like i can't work with you Lyndon. i cannot work with you working with you is way too much and he basically makes some comment about how like the only person in this senate who could counterbalance the aggressiveness and you know rough edges of Lyndon johnson is this sort of mild-mannered man from uh, Montana who everybody loves named Mike's Man- Mike Mansfield. Is that basically the origin story? You got it exactly right. Uh, some some senator said uh, only a saint like Mansfield could get along with Lyndon Johnson. As <laughs> so with some reluctance, Johnson accepted the fact that uh, Mansfield was a you know was a good understudy that he had a that he was a bridge to Northwestern Democrats at that time. Mm-hmm. So this is the Senate that included Scoop Jackson and and uh, Warren Magnuson from Washington. So, you know, really powerful members of uh, of the Senate. And, but Mansfield, you know, was a bridge to the more liberal, uh, moderate to liberal wing of the Democratic Party at that time. And Johnson, of course, was still considered the uh, the champion of Southern, uh, the Southern Bloc in the Senate. Uh, and he needed he needed Mansfield in a way to kind of provide some uh, broader diversity in the uh, Democratic caucus. So you're right. He he did become uh, Johnson's understudy. And then when LBJ went on to be some very surprisingly to many people, uh, willingly became John Kennedy's vice presidential running mate and eventually vice president. There was no other alternative. Everybody said the majority leader's got to be Mansfield even though most people in the Senate and certainly most Washington reporters realized this was yin and yang. These guys were totally different. Mm-hmm. Mansfield was going to be a different kind of majority leader, not this domineering guy. You know, the, the story was that Lyndon would, um, you know, tell some committee chairman on a piece of legislation, I, I'll take care of the, I'll manage the floor debate. And even though the bill had worked its way through a committee system, he would often take over uh, management of the bill on the floor because he wanted that kind of control. And Mansfield never did that. He always empowered the committee chairs or the people who were, you know, sponsors of legislation to lead uh, the lead the floor debate. So it was an, an entirely different approach uh, to political leadership. How, how would you describe Mansfield Manfield, Mansfield's um vision of the Senate and his leadership philosophy? Like, how, how how did he approach that job? Well, that's a great question. And it's kind of fundamental to the story. And I think it's fundamental to understanding why the word that is most often used today to describe the Senate is dysfunctional. Uh-huh. Um, Mansfield uh, recognized because he was a historian, a guy who really was steeped in the Constitution, that this weird institution of the U.S. Senate, every state with two senators, regardless of the size of the state. You know, we were talking the other day, Ben, when we talked, California has as much Mm -hmm. clout in the Senate as Wyoming does or vice Mm -hmm. versa. So every state, you know, two senators, regardless of its size. Um, The Senate has this arcane system of rules, unlimited debate, uh, lots of tradition and lots of kind of quirky processes and but at the same time you know that's where judges go to get confirmed supreme court and and federal federal judges where members of the cabinet are confirmed where treaties uh, are ratified or not ratified so um 
Mansfield, first and foremost, was an institutionalist. He understood that the Senate had all these creaky rules and this uh, history of not being very democratic, small d democratic in terms of the way it operates. And he knew that he had to try to find a way to make the Senate work if the federal government was going to work. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I, I suggest in the book that he, he really did it in a way that allowed the 1960s, even with all of the uh, partisan and other kind of turmoil that went along with civil rights and voting rights and assassination of John Kennedy and so many other things, Vietnam that happened during the 60s, Mansfield, working with Dirksen, really found a way to make the Senate work and produce some enduring legislation that we all are familiar with, uh, what, 60 years later. That's it. So let's let's meet Everett Dirksen, uh, the senator from Illinois, a uh, very colorful figure and kind of like the polar opposite of of Mansfield's like doesn't care who gets credit wants to he's Mansfield would famously like when he was in White House photos he'd stand at the edge so he's like outside the frame whereas Dirksen loves to talk to the press what's the nickname wizard what was it wizard of ooze wizard of ooze like this is a guy who loves to be in front of the camera he uses 50 words when he could use 10 uh tell us about Everett Dirksen Well, I just want to draw the contrast between Mansfield and Dirksen a little sharper, more sharply. Um, Mansfield's almost shy as a politician. He's very soft-spoken, very laconic, um, you know, ramrod straight in his demeanor, a a legacy of his time as a Marine uh, Corps PFC. So, he, you know, he's just very reserved, very laid back, uh, not a domineering personality by any means. Dirksen, on the other hand, uh, had aspirations as a young man to be an actor. He wrote Mm -hmm. plays, acted on the stage, wanted to be an actor. And finally, his mother uh, basically insisted that he promised never to be an actor, that he had to get some serious uh, job. So he went into politics. (laughs) He carried over that that actor's uh, sensibility, the sense of showmanship. Great voice. I mean, if you listen... Go uh, Google a YouTube video of Everett Dirksen. He had this rolling baritone voice, and he made the most of it. Back in the days when there was not amplification in the uh, house chamber, for for example, when he first started out, everybody said you don't you didn't need to pay close attention because you could hear Dirksen from the back of the back <laughs> of the chamber. He had such a great projective voice, and he cultivated that image of being. Uh, iconoclastic, unusual. You know, he had a mop of uh, unruly white hair, and he made sure it was always unruly. Uh, <laughs> his suits were a little too big and baggy for him. Uh, he had a great sense of humor, could tell uh, great stories. and But at the same time, he was a darn serious legislator who knew how to cut a deal, who how to, knew how to work with Mansfield, work with other Democrats in order to pass you know, as I said, some enduring legislation. So the fact that these two guys with such different personalities and such different approaches to political leadership could be successful together, and not just successful, but as you suggested, Ben, really friendly with each other. I mean, beyond friendship, a real mutual admiration society. Uh, When the Mansfield Center at the University of Montana was being established in the late 60s, um, and I'm proud to say I'm a fellow at the Mansfield Center, which is a great Mm -hmm. honor for me. Uh, 
Dirksen wrote letters to some of his top political contributors asking them to send money to support the Mansfield Center. So imagine mm. it's not probably something Chuck Schumer would do for uh, Mitch McConnell today. Well, and didn't didn't they endorse each other for re-election at one point? Effectively, they did. Um, you know, Mansfield um, very um, very happy to have Dirksen reelected in 1962 when he got a pretty stiff challenge in Illinois. Uh, two years later, Mansfield's running for re-election in Montana. Dirksen's cornered by some reporters, and they ask him about, uh, is he going to be campaigning around the country for Republican candidates? And he said, I'll go anywhere. Just don't ask me to go to Montana. <laughs> That's amazing. Again, not something you can imagine at all. Today, really, at any, I can't imagine that at the, at basically any level of government. Um, before we go to context, and we're going to tie this back, uh, as I will have mentioned in the intro, to not just the contemporary moment of American politics, but also to Oregon specifically. I want to do one quick little, so I think this is true. Correct me if I'm wrong here. Dirksen never served in the majority in his 18 years in the Senate. He was always in the minority. Um, and yet your book uh, makes the claim that he became one of the most powerful and influential leaders in the country as someone who always was in the minority. Uh, Oregon Republicans might look at a figure like Dirksen and say, hey, uh, we've been in the minority for 18 years or whatever. What was Dirksen's secret? What made him, how was he able to be a genuinely powerful and influential figure um, without ever, in fact, I think during most of the period of this book, not only was he not in the majority in the Senate, but the House was controlled by Democrats and the White House was uh, democratically controlled. So how do you understand the the factors or skills that he possessed that actually made him really broadly effective and influential? Well, the confluence of these two guys' careers really is marked, I think, by their respect for the institution of the Senate. Mm. Above and beyond partisan politics or, or really even beyond their own political standing uh, in their states or in, in the Senate. So they, they really believed in the institution and trying to make the institution work uh, in the broader public interest uh, at the time. Now, having said that, I would say that uh, you have to understand one of the things that is really unusual uh, compared to today about the Senate in the 60s, 50s, and 60s was that both parties had uh, great diversity within them, mm -hmm. within their parties. There were liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats and you hardly have any of that today in politics at the state or federal level. Mm -hmm. So Dirksen had a party that included, you know, Barry Goldwater on the far right and somebody like Jacob Javits from New York, who was as probably as liberal as Ted Kennedy uh, <laughs> on most things. Dirksen had a party uh, with a liberal like Hubert Humphrey from Minnesota and a conservative uh, Southerner like Richard Russell from Georgia. Uh -huh. And he had to find a way somehow to keep that a political party cohesive and, and together. And when it was impossible to keep it together and still try to pass legislation, Dirksen had, a, had the ability in the Republican Party and Mansfield in the Democratic Party to create a bipartisan coalition to, for mm -hmm. example, pass the uh, Civil Rights Act in 1964, which would have been impossible had Dirksen not been able to produce the votes uh, from uh, many Republicans in his own caucus who were reluctant, you know, frankly, reluctant to give Lyndon Johnson a big victory on such a high profile issue 
but they they eventually came around to it because Dirksen led them on a path that made sense to them politically and otherwise. So it's and, it's really a, a different uh, a different environment because of the, the the diversity of the parties. But at the same time, you and I know Ben political um, sort of political approaches or political rules tend to mm -hmm. be universal. Yes. Uh, in order to get things done, often you have to be able to reach across the political aisle and find an ally who might tomorrow not be on the same page with you on anything, but on a particular given issue might actually be helpful uh, to getting something done. And those guys, both of those guys knew that and practiced that. To that point, one of the things that like, and, and I don't know if this is correct, so I'm curious if you agree. I, it seems to me a lot of Dirksen's power soft power perhaps was really because he had a direct line to the white house and he had a direct line to the majority leader so he couldn't actually control the agenda himself but he like there's there's this uh you know we're talking when, when you're writing about the nuclear test ban treaty like he basically writes was it him or mansfield now maybe i'm getting it no it's mansfield who writes basically writes what he wants the president to say in a speech actually, or to release actually it was dirksen it was Dirksen. Dirksen says to Mansfield, I believe, you know, in order to get this limited test ban treaty passed through the Senate, you know, which requires a two thirds vote, uh, the president's going to have to say something that allows us, uh, you know, to have some cover on it politically. Mm -hmm. So Mansfield picks up the phone, calls the White House, uh, says we're going down to see the president. Man, uh, they show up at the Oval Office with John Kennedy. Dirksen reaches inside his coat pocket, pulls out a, a letter that he has already drafted, basically says, Mr. President, you know, it's it's uh, presumptuous of me to suggest, but I think this is what you ought to say. Kennedy had the, the, the letter prepared that Dirksen wrote, and it was a key moment in breaking the, the deadlock in the Senate to pass what is now considered the fundamental baseline uh, nuclear arms limitation treaty that every other treaty uh, since 1962 has been based upon. So that's yeah. an example of, of, as you say, exercising that soft power. Then in turn, Dirksen could go uh, back to his caucus and say, look what I got the president to do. He's giving us some assurances here that are not in the treaty and we should support him on this. So he had a remarkable relationship with both John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson. Interestingly enough, when Richard Nixon becomes president in 1969, Dirksen's pretty critical of Nixon, uh, his, <laughs> his president from his party, the first Republican in, a, in, a, in 10 years. And he's pretty, uh, he's pretty critical of Nixon and some of the people he surrounded himself with. So he was an independent cuss, for sure, partisan Republican to the soles of his feet. But he knew how to make a deal and he knew how to get things done. So be before we move on to the context of the 1960s, um, let's do, we talked about it a little bit there. But what the two the two probably most relevant presidents during this period are JFK and LBJ for different reasons. Uh, it, for both presidents, both presidents have like not just a good relationship, but like very consistent and productive and uh friendly relationship with both Mansfield and Dirksen is that right uh, absolutely correct uh both I I would almost argue uh, a little bit to a fault both deferred to the president hmm. on lots of things 
uh, particularly when it came to foreign policy issues. Um, but nonetheless, they had a, a, a close relationship, personal relationship, a respectful relationship with, with the president. Uh, Kennedy uh, and Mansfield, I would suggest, probably had the closest relationship between any president and the Senate Majority Leader maybe in, in history. Wow. I mean, it was very personal. Uh, they sat next to each other in the back row in the Senate when they first came to the Senate together in 1952. So yeah. they they were both Irish Catholics. Uh, so there was a, a real bond between the two. Mansfield was a little older, obviously, and it almost was like a father-son relationship in some respects. Dirksen's this... relationship with Lyndon Johnson is, is absolutely fabulous. Um, one of the real fun things about researching the book, Ben, was all of these telephone conversations that Lyndon Johnson recorded in the Oval Office mm. are available now through the Miller Center at the University of Virginia. So you can listen to these incredible conversations between the President of the United States and the Senate Minority Leader on all kinds of things where they're joshing around and kidding with each other. And <laughs> Johnson's suggesting that, you know, uh, Dirksen needs to go get a good steak dinner and a big glass of bourbon and a woman in one at one time. Dirksen's happily married, never any hint of him uh, uh, fooling around on his wife. And Lyndon Johnson's joking with him about picking up a, a, a girl at a bar. So <laughs> I think it's just incredible, the relationship and the candor and, and frankly, the trust between these people. They knew, I think, instinctively and based upon their experience that uh, they weren't going to get uh, a fast one pulled on them if they uh, placed their trust in each other. One of the other cool things about your book is that there's pictures throughout the book of these figures. And one of my favorite pictures is, is like some congressional baseball game. I don't know if it was like the same one that there is today, but JFK is the catcher. Mike's man, Mike Mansfield is the umpire, which I think you, you draw some, uh, some uh, me a metaphor there with Mansfield being the guy calling balls. I can't remember who, who the hitter was, but it was just pretty incredible. Scoop Jackson, Scoop Jackson of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so really cool photo. Okay, so uh, in the interest of time, let's let's shift to the context of the 60s. Uh, in the introduction, here's uh, a section that, that stuck out to me. You used some of this language actually already. But the promise of a new frontier ushered in with, the John, F. with John F. Kennedy's razor-thin presidential victory in 1960, 113,000 votes would have changed the outcome electing Richard Nixon, gave way to, a, to superpower rivalries, including the closest the world has yet come to nuclear war, social and racial strife, political assassinations, and a tragic war. So important to remember, the reason why I think this is really important, the context of the 60s, is we'll talk in a moment about the actual accomplishments that these two men ushered in. Um, but it's not like this was an easy moment to be operating politi politically. Uh, in fact, it was an incredibly challenging moment to operate politically. So can you just talk about the context, uh, the political context and social and cultural context that Mansfield and Dirksen are navigating while they're in these two positions of great leadership in the country? Yeah, you know, I think you have to start with the with the reality. And it certainly was widely felt in political circles in 1960 and 61 that you have this, the youngest guy to ever uh, be elected president, John Kennedy, replacing the oldest man up to that point who had served as president, Dwight Eisenhower, Dwight Eisenhower. you know, the, the guy who won the war, World War II in Europe, uh, you know, everybody's father figure, I love Ike. 
Um, and young Kennedy, you know, a little bit of a of a Hollywood style uh, personality, you know, very photogenic, beautiful wife. Mm -hmm. And he replaces the old general. So there's a real sense of, of fundamental change in the country. Then right off the bat, uh, Kennedy stubs his toe big time by going through with a plot that had been hatched during Eisenhower's administration uh, to send a bunch of Cuban uh, exiles to invade Fidel Castro's Cuba. Which the Bay of Pigs. Horribly wrong. The Bay of Pigs. Followed by uh, uh, an emboldened Soviet Union uh, deciding that they're going to test this guy, Kennedy, uh, by putting uh, nuclear missiles in Cuba. So you have the, the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Mm -hmm. And then uh, accelerated uh, world power conflicts in Southeast Asia with the French withdrawal from Indochina and the United States somewhat reluctantly at first and then wholeheartedly deciding that it's going to fill the vacuum left by the French in this uh, you know, burgeoning civil war between the North and South Vietnamese. So there's just a whole bunch of things going on. And then domestically, you layer over that um, Lots of unrest, uh, racial unrest in the South. 1962 marks the uh, the Freedom Rides, the beginning of the Freedom mm -hmm. Rides in the South, where uh, college kids would go to Mississippi and Alabama to register Black voters and suffer, you know, in some cases, death for being audacious enough to uh, go down there and, and campaign for voting rights for African-Americans. So it was a completely uh, tumultuous time which makes the accomplishments of the Senate, frankly, in that context, uh, even the more even more remarkable, it seems to me. So let's talk about some of the accomplishments, like aside from the, you know, we often talk, we, I think that the idea of like bipartisanship is often praised uh, in the sort of like think piece uh, media by like, we need, we need to work together again. Um but it's also important, like what the bipartisanship is actually yielding. Like, like we don't need bipartisanship just for bipartisanship. In fact, we've had bipartisan alignment on some really bad things in this country's history, um, including the Vietnam War. Uh, so, what did they do that mattered? What, what, what did this bipartisan, this unique relationship between these two gentlemen actually yield for the country? Um, aside from just having a, a legislative branch that functioned, like why did it matter that it that they got along and what what they were able to to accomplish? Well, in the Kennedy administration, his number one foreign policy accomplishment, I would argue, was the limited nuclear test ban treaty with the Soviets in 1962, which required a huge bipartisan lift in the Senate. Mm -hmm. Southern Democrats were very suspicious of a treaty with the Soviets to in any way be construed as limiting the United States' ability to develop nuclear weapons. Uh, so that was a, a foundational accomplishment. Um, very strong support from both Dirksen and uh, Mansfield for Kennedy's efforts to uh, pass a civil rights bill prior to his assassination in uh, November of 1963. Uh, there's been some uh, continuing debate, I guess, about how hard Kennedy really was willing to push for a civil rights bill. But mm -hmm. after um, the uh, unrest at the University of Mississippi uh, when James Meredith was uh, finally allowed to enroll at Ole Miss and uh, the assassination of 
uh, Medgar Evers, the civil rights leader in Mississippi. Uh, Kennedy really came around on civil rights, and uh, but he had a he had a difficult problem because he had a significant part of the Democratic Party, who Southern Democrats primarily, who were opposed to civil rights legislation. So the only way to get something done was to work across the aisle with Dirksen. And Mansfield, uh, part of his genius, frankly, was his willingness to cede leadership to Dirksen on that issue. Mm -hmm. And he did it almost completely. I tell the story in the book, Ben, about uh, one of uh, Mansfield's aides at one point saying, do we always have to meet in Dirksen's office? <laughs> I mean, he comes out, the television cameras are there. Uh, we're meeting on his turf and he gives his little report to the uh, press while Mansfield is stand there, standing there as he always was puffing on his ever present uh, pipe. pipe. And uh, Mansfield says, no, uh, we're going to keep meeting in Dirksen's office. We need his votes. We need to, to put him in the leadership position so he can bring along enough Republicans that we can get this really important piece of legislation passed. So it's a, it's a remarkable uh, Historians have suggested, and I believe it's true, and I use the terminology in the book, Mansfield accumulated power by giving it away. Mm -hmm. He was able to become more effective, more respected. Uh, people were more willing to follow his lead on things because he was so even-handed, so fair in how he approached dealing with every member of the Senate. Mm. And then I'd say the 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 maybe the last big category of uh, policy achievements is the Great Society package, right. which included a lot of provisions. What role did did uh, the sort of bipartisan alliance between those two play in getting that stuff across the finish line? Well, of course, uh, after Kennedy's assassination in, in November of 63, Johnson makes uh, getting Kennedy's uh, program passed through Congress his, his priority. He knows he's going to run for president in 1964. He wants to be able to show the country that he's accomplished things. So he pushes really hard to get a civil rights bill passed. And he deserves a lot of credit for that. Uh, but I think you can't give credit to Lyndon Johnson without giving credit to Everett Dirksen and Mike Mansfield for getting the Civil Rights Act passed. Then in 1965, particularly after uh, the voting rights march in Alabama from Selma to Montgomery that ended up with future Congressman John Lewis getting getting beaten to the point of having to be hospitalized and uh, African-Americans marching for the right of right to vote being attacked viciously by Alabama state troopers. Johnson had to act on voting rights. And again, it was the Dirksen-Mansfield combination that made it possible to, to break a filibuster and get a voting rights bill passed through the Senate. Then comes this just avalanche of great society legislation, Medicare, uh, federal aid to public education and colleges and universities, student loan programs, passage of the Wilderness Act, uh, passage of uh, eventually a Fair Housing Act, which Dirksen initially opposed and then came around to support. Mm -hmm. uh, all of the um, great society legislation that we sort of take for granted today, creation of public television, the National Endowments for the Arts and Humanities, all of that happened in that period, all of it on a bipartisan basis. It was a realization to me, Ben, to, re to, to know and learn in the research that a lot of that legislation passed on a voice vote in the Senate. They didn't even mm -hmm. have a recorded vote. So 
it was a which, which signals that matters because it signals uh not that it's non-controversial but that there's not uh, uh sort of like uh strong opposition is that basically yeah. what that means yeah strong opposition or at least a willingness to you know realize that if you were on the other side of what was prevailing <laughs> sentiment you were just wasting the senate's time if you were going to engage in a long debate about a piece of legislation that was ultimately going to pass so uh, all of that happened uh, under Lyndon Johnson's watch from 1964 uh, through about 1960, late 1967. Then Vietnam really overtook Johnson's agenda. Mm -hmm. And uh, I say in the book, and I think this is true, that the one great issue that Mansfield and Dirksen could not get together on was uh, trying to make the Senate more effective in responding to uh, U.S. foreign policy in Southeast Asia. Mansfield was an early and outspoken opponent of American involvement in the war. Dirksen, down the line to the to the end of his life, uh, supported uh, U.S. policy in Vietnam. So they could not bridge the uh, the differences there in their worldview. And both of them, it's important to note, came of age in the McCarthy era, Joseph McCarthy, right. when both parties were you know, super sensitive to being seen as soft on communism and Democrats in particular yeah. were super sensitive to that charge. So it's remarkable in many ways that Mansfield was a leading opponent of the of the war, but he still tried to be constructive in his opposition, suggesting to Kennedy and ultimately suggesting to Johnson that a negotiated settlement of the war was the only possible way uh, to get the United States extricated from that awful jungle war. And, uh, you know, took another president, Richard Nixon, to finally, uh, or Gerald Ford even, to finally bring an end to American involvement in Southeast Asia. I think it was Mansfield. There's this story in the book where uh, McCarthy's like going all around the country and he's campaigning and he's doing his thing. Um, and then he, he was campaigning against Mansfield, I think. And Mansfield uh, gets elected. He's at the Senate and they get on an elevator together. And McCarthy goes uh so how's it going how's montana uh mike and and he goes a lot better since you left <laughs> was the line i think that's about the most pointed thing <laughs> mansfield ever said to any politician be that kind of throwaway line a lot better since you left yeah okay so in our last 15 or 20 minutes here um you know, it's it's very easy to to look back at the good old days and say, oh, you know, life was so much better. Or politics was so much better back then when people could work together. The natural question, I think, at least for me, is like, is it possible today? Is it possible to have a Mansfield Dirksen relationship? Is it possible for incredibly big, let's just say, impactful legislation like the 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 um, stuff we've talked about to be bipartisan? I want to read a couple excerpts uh, from the book and then have you kind of reflect on this question. Is, is it possible today? Uh, first, from uh, page 62, uh, you're talking about elements of leadership. A premise of this book is that few members of the U.S. Senate today, given the Senate's deep and often paralyzing partisanship, are willing or able to function within the institution in the manner Mike Mansfield and Everett Dirksen did. Uh, so that's part one. Part two is perhaps Mansfield's, Man, Mansfield's long tenure as majority leader, a record length of time for one leader, but a short period in the long history of the Senate, 
was merely an aberration, an interlude where bipartisan cooperation often triumphed, but that quickly reverted to, a, to partisan gamesmanship once the quiet man from Montana stepped off the Senate floor for the final time. You're implying there, and when we met up, you pointed to the review on the back of the book, which ends with who leads matters. You're implying there that it is indeed possible. Yes, the politics of this country has changed. Yes, there's been this great sorting of parties where truly there's one conservative party and truly one progressive party, but that with great leaders or great figures or unique personalities, that those dynamics might be able to be overcome um, if the right combination of leaders with the right combination of skills. W where do you land on this question? Is it possible today? Well, yeah. I have to say, yes, it's possible, or I would be, uh, you know, so morose about the future of the Republic that I probably couldn't uh, stand it. Okay. So I think, yes, it has to be possible. Okay. Um, but things have to change and the leadership of, uh, of Congress has to change in order to see a more productive environment where the nation's big problems are really seriously uh, confronted. So I quote Jeff Merkley in the book uh, mm -hmm. toward the end about uh, being astounded at one point uh, in his fairly uh, new career when he came into the Senate and there was actually a debate going on where two senators were actually engaged in a real debate, uh, you know, very substantive discussion about some important issue. So the Senate, you know, always has been referred to as the world's greatest deliberative body, but it hardly deliberates anymore. <laughs> You know, committees still function, uh, but uh, really important legislation gets written in the majority leader's office for the most part, with mm -hmm. a handful of senators involved. That is antithetical to, way, to the way Mansfield and Dirksen uh, thought the Senate had to operate. Uh, Mansfield, in particular, empowered committee chairmen, even ones he disagreed with on major issues, uh, to run the committees, to have serious hearings. Uh, you know, to do the deliberative process of, of coming up with good legislation. So the Senate has to get back to what sometimes is referred to as regular order, where those kinds of hearings happen on a routine basis, where they don't, where neither party uses the hearing process just to score political po points mm -hmm. against the opponents, but to actually cra craft legislation that might make a difference. You have to go back to a, a, a serious debate in the Senate over important issues. I think, uh, you know, Senator Merkley, again, um, is absolutely right that we ought to return to a talking filibuster, mm -hmm. this idea that you can just say, I'm going to filibuster something, and it paralyzes the Senate because you need 60 votes to move forward, is crazy. Uh, we had the talking filibuster in the Dirksen-Mansfield era, where senators had to hold the floor, they had to engage in debate. Uh, and Mansfield did it in a way that people respected the process and he didn't try to keep him up all night and wear him down and bring in pots. So he said, you know, uh, elderly senators were patting around in their house slippers. Uh, so we, we need to we need to do some of those kinds of reforms where I draw the line and where I think reality should draw the line is that uh, we're not going to change the Senate. Uh, institutionally in any fundamental way. Mm -hmm. So you see a lot of uh, ink gets spilled on, well, we need to reform the Senate by, you know, apportioning it differently. Well, that requires a, an amendment to the Constitution. That's just, that's not a non-starter right off the bat, not going to happen. So um, 
I think the Mansfield philosophy here was that every senator, regardless of his position, regardless of his seniority, his importance, had a responsibility to the institution to try to make it work. And he tried to lead by example uh, with his devotion to complete candor, uh, trustworthiness, honesty, fair dealing. And that's the way uh, the Senate has to operate if it's going to change. And that requires, I'm sorry to say, but it does require different, better quality leadership. People who are committed to not just their party, not just to the next reelection, but to going back to Washington, D.C., certainly to represent their state, but not to be just a, a first and foremost, a gun, gun-toting partisan who is uh, willing, you know, always looking for an opportunity uh, to score a point on the opposition. So let, let me ask you this, because I've been thinking about I would this. just say parenthetically for Oregon voters and Oregon yeah. political buffs, the state has that kind of a tradition in the Senate yeah, in two respects. You know, back uh, in the Hatfield era, uh, when uh, Ron Wyden and Gordon Smith served together in the mm -hmm. Senate, you saw that in a way that, um, frankly, you don't see very often these days. So it is possible with better people in those positions. And I, you know, I think Oregon's got a couple of pretty darn good senators. And there are good Republican senators, too. They're just too often hamstrung by the by the constraints of being a partisan uh, in their within their party, as opposed to being able once in a while to step out of that role and put the na national interest ahead of their own party interest. So that that's what I want to ask about is um, so that so this book this is a book about the U.S. Senate in some ways, and it, it is in some ways a love letter to the institution. It's clear that you uh, have reverence for these these leaders who who shepherded the institution and and cared for the institution but it's also a book about leadership and about how good leaders uh can get things done so i think there's it's applicable in the oregon context as well um you know partisanship is a dynamic in the united states period regardless of which level you're operating and it looks a little different at the national level than at, than at the state level than at the local level but any elected official right now is navigating partisan challenges so here, here I'll, I'll ask you the question this way. Could a Senate minority leader today stand beside a president of the opposite party and the majority leader of the opposite party and support their domestic agenda uh, or international agenda, support their agenda and be able to retain their position of power? Do you, is that possible? Because I think part of the problem here is like the parties are so far apart right. that for someone to stand next to the person who they're painting as evil and an entire campaign apparatus, billion plus dollars spent saying they're the bad guys who are running this country into a ditch. It seems like the political risk of, especially at the national level, to stand next to, you know, either Joe Biden or Donald Trump and tout uh, a policy agenda would be could be career suicide what do you what do you think about that yeah you 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 have returned me to my pessimistic roots here ben with that <laughs> question because i think you're absolutely right it probably would be political suicide for a leader of either party to stand next to the president of the other party and support uh, their agenda in some way 
even though Dirksen did that repeatedly with Kennedy mm -hmm. and Johnson and Mansfield did it with even with Richard Nixon, who he uh, didn't develop quite nearly as close of a relationship as he had with the other two presidents. But uh, and he certainly had a close relationship with Dwight Eisenhower back in the 50s. So it is possible, but not very likely, given these, you know, ultra hyper partisan uh, attitudes that have overtaken uh American politics uh, in the 21st century. It's it's really hard to see how that happens. I do think I, for, for me, part of it, uh, so the first campaign I really, really worked on was the John Kitzhaber 2010 campaign. And I remember one of his TV ads in that campaign, there was a line he says, he goes, there have to be things you're willing to fight for and there have to be things you're willing to lose for. And I do think part of the the issue here to the this is along the lines of like we need to elect better people whatever that means is okay maybe it does end your career but maybe that was the right thing to do <laughs> maybe maybe you made it to the united states senate you made it to be the minority leader and you've got this moment where you have a choice you can either preserve your status as a senator for the rest of your career uh or you can choose a strategic and important stand to take uh that you know, maybe helps diffuse some of this partisan tension we've got and accomplishes a, a, a major policy win that the country desperately needs. And like, maybe there's a right time to use all the political capital you've been building up your throughout your career and and end it. Um, I think that's like an antithetical thought to a lot of politicians. It's like, the only way you can be a successful politician is if you keep winning re-election. Um, and I just, I think that's, I don't, it's, I don't have a great answer to how we like bust through this, like really polarizing dynamic that we find ourselves in other than leaders, uh, doing the hard thing and potentially, you, you know, and there, there've been a few who have done this over the last couple of years, although I'd argue not super impactfully, unfortunately. Um, but that's the only thing that comes to my mind in terms of like a way to break the, the dynamic we've encountered. Yeah, my, my old boss, C. Sandris, uh, often said, you know, if, if I don't take a position every every year or two, that really puts me at odds with my constituents. I'm probably not doing my job. Mm -hmm. uh, and he always told the story about Idaho uh, uh, first voting in a sales tax back in the 1960s. That's a foreign concept in Oregon, I know, but uh, Idaho has a sales tax. And uh, he was one, he was one of the deciding votes in the state Senate to approve a sales tax measure in 1966. Mm -hmm. And he went home, uh, organ, um, arranged to have the high school gymnasium for a town hall meeting where he thought he was just going to get hammered up one side and down the other for this vote uh, for a sales tax. And uh, he got up, explained why he had voted that way, that he thought it would stabilize uh, school funding for the long term, which it did. and. Uh, and he was fine, you know. He took a gutsy position that was seeming to be uh, contrary to his constituents. Went out and explained it uh, to them how thoughtful he had approached the issue, uh, and they said, "Oh, okay. Well, I might not agree with him, but at least he's an honest guy, and he's telling us like uh, he really believes it is." Mm. Mansfield did a remarkable thing in 1968. You know, Bobby Kennedy was assassinated in mm. June of 1968 having just won the California primary for president. Um, Martin Luther King was assassinated in 1968. Mm -hmm. And a young Marine Corps officer from Montana was killed in a murder in Washington, D.C., mm -hmm. right about the same time. Mansfield was just devastated by, by this carnage. 
And he voted in favor of a gun control measure in 1968 that uh, went after the kind of uh, guns, frankly, that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald uh, used uh, to kill President Kennedy and the so-called Saturday Night Special that Sirhan Sirhan used to uh, assassinate Bobby Kennedy. And he voted for that in Montana at a time when he knew his constituents were adamantly opposed to gun control. And he went home and explained it, got reelected uh, in spite of that vote, because again, people said, well, you know, Mike must have studied the issue. We may not agree with him, but you know, he's a man of his convictions. So a little more of that in politics, maybe a lot more of that in politics would be a very good thing. <laughs> you quoted in your book, I wrote this down because I was like, I need to keep this one handy. Uh, it's an Edmund Burke quote. Your representative owes you not his industry only, but his judgment. And he betrays instead of serving you if he sacrifices it to your opinion, uh, which I think is brilliant because that's how our system is supposed to work. I don't, there yeah. are different ways that people could interpret this, but I don't think we elect representatives who are supposed to vote like, you know, like do a poll on every single bill and you just vote the way the majority of your constituents want you to vote on any given bill. Like you are supposed to bring your judgment, your lived experience, your strategic thinking to the table. And to your point, justify your opinion to the people who elect you and hopefully you can win them over. Or like, it, I don't think like, you know, Mansfield didn't change anyone's mind in Montana or maybe he did some, but the majority of Montana voters at the time of the election would have preferred that that bill probably not pass and exactly. that gun rights be yeah. untouched, but they were willing to take a man of, you know, undoubtedly a man of integrity who's doing what he thought was the right thing for the country and accept that he wasn't going to be a hundred percent aligned with them. And I think the book even says this was the animating issue of his reelection. Like this was litigated. This was yeah, not okay. like he was trying to not talk about it. The guy who ran a sporting goods store in Great Falls ran against him in uh, in the 1970 election, which he won actually pretty easily. I also quote uh, Tom Wicker in the book, a uh, great New York Times uh, reporter and columnist who covered Congress for many years and wrote a really great little book that mostly forgotten now about John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson kind of comparing and contrasting these these two Democratic presidents. And Wicker, I won't get the quote quite right, but he basically said, you know, the first order uh, for a politician is to educate and inform his voters, hmm. their voters, uh, to use the position of being elected uh, to provide some insight to the voters about the way the world is working, not just to parrot back to them what they think, what the politician thinks the voters want to hear but to actually do the hard work of, you know, mastering issues and then going and trying to convince people that this is the right way to proceed. We seem to have flipped that almost on its head now where totally. politicians are totally driven by, you know, the latest uh, wet, wet finger in the wind or what their pollster tells them is the popular position without a whole lot of uh, regard for maybe what the right thing to do or maybe even what their own conscience tells them needs to be done. Which is funny because what, as I'm thinking about this, is what you're describing is is leadership. Uh, is it the job of our elected officials to be leaders and be out front and take us right. where you think we ought to go, or is it to stand behind the masses and sort of follow the direction where the majority of their constituents are going? It it is not a revolu revolutionary thought, um, but it is like you know it it I. Obviously, as a as a politician, I have empathy for politicians, and I obviously am not perfect at this by any stretch. But 
Um, it is a really hard time. You know, that Everett Dirksen does have a group that is formed uh, to that says this guy should not be the minority well, leader. A, by by our standards, he's a rhino. You know, for, yes, for he's doing. He, yeah. Exactly. There are costs. And, you know, I, you know, you know, he's too friendly with John Kennedy. He's too close to Lyndon Johnson. Yeah, exactly. Right. There are, there are always going to be those people. Um, and by the way, there are times I think when uh, principled opposition to the party in power is not just warranted, but critical to democracy. And I think we actually saw a lot of that in 26, 2016 to 2020, my personal opinion. Yeah, um, no, absolutely right. That's a basic tenet of a democratic system. Uh, yeah. Principled opposition to the majority party is, is a fine thing. But when it just becomes a knee-jerk uh, reaction to partisanship, uh, it can be very destructive, as we've seen over the last many years. Yeah. Well, Mark, you've been incredibly generous with your time, uh, and I just want to say thank you for coming on the podcast. Uh, oh, I, I will been great fun talking to you. Thank you. I will have plugged this in the intro, but the book is Mansfield and Dirksen, and I think you know. For me, I enjoy reading books about history um, as much as any other subject, particularly political history, because I do think like. Uh, you know, there's there there's a couple moments in this book where you're reading and you're like, oh my gosh, that is like identical to the context that we're navigating today, um, in specific settings. So I think there's a ton of use for current leaders to be studying how people who were super successful in their roles, like Mansfield and like Dirksen, what they did, how they approached the job, um, you know, whether they had an ego or didn't, whether they talked to the press yeah. or they didn't. Um, and obviously you have to match your personality and skills to the role you're in, but I think they are, what I love about them is they just did both of their roles so differently and LBJ did it differently than both of them. And each of them found their own success in a productive way for the country. Um, so I, I strongly encourage folks to pick up the book and, and read it. I think it will benefit, uh, hopefully the next gener generation of leaders as much as it did, um, as much as the generation of leaders who, uh, who were successful in navigating difficult times. So Mark, thanks for writing the book. Very, very kind of you, Ben. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Really absolutely. Enjoyed. All right, folks. Thanks for listening uh, to this week's episode and we will see you back here next week. Bye.